All right. Well, the children are leaving, and I think Cornerstone is also today, as I see Josh leaving the, the room. So the teenagers will go with Josh as well. And so today, as we stay in here as adults, we're continuing our study, our continuing our reading, examining, and applying the Oracle of Nahum. Now remember, we've defined oracle upon a couple of occasions now because it's not a word that we may use in everyday language. So in an effort to understand what is meant by oracle of Nahum, we looked upon the word and seen that is typically a divine revelation communicated by God's spokesperson. In this case, it's a prophet. Sometimes it could be a priest or king. But to communicating and pronouncing then blessing instruction or judgment in this instant with Nahum I mean he is the prophet being used by God to not pronounce any kind of blessing any kind of instruction but rather to pronounce judgment and wrath that will fall upon the great city of Nineveh we have discussed it we understand now that God is angry he is upset with the Ninevites he had now has had enough Yes, Nineveh once previously repented during the days of Jonah, but has, unfortunately, the Ninevites returned to evil, wicked, rebellious, ruthless ways. So God is angered. So in chapter 1, when we go to Nahum, we look up on the beginning and see verses 2 and 3 to define us a little bit about the anger that God has upon the Ninevites. We've seen that he was a jealous and avenging God. He's going to take vengeance on his adversaries and keep wrath for his enemies. That is specifically in this case, Nineveh. And seen in verse 3 that he's great in power and by no means clear to guilty, again referring to the great city of Nineveh. So we see that was the jest, if you will, of chapter 1. We divided chapter 1 upon two weeks. We understood that was the occasion. And we also seen before we leave any part of chapter 1 and now leap into chapter 2, we should also understand that in the pronouncement of judgment that Nahum is giving the Ninevites, that God has said through the, through the prophet that he will bring the city, he will bring it all to complete in, as mentioned in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. With an overflowing flood, the impact of his power, he will make a complete end of his adversaries, the Ninevites. Again, repeated the second time in verse 9, he will make a complete end. So Nahum is the spokesperson chosen by God in this moment, the prophet from Elkosh, to pronounce doom and despair and destruction that will someday come upon the Ninevites. In essence, their day is coming. He is pronouncing that to them. The Lord's wrath will be placed upon them. That was a jest again of the first chapter. But that leaves us with maybe a question in our mind. Well, what, what kind of wrath will that be? How soon will it come? To what extent? Is there any details at all given to us in the prophet's words about the extent of the doom being placed upon Nineveh? Well, there is. In fact, it is the second chapter which tells us the extent of the details that will come upon Nineveh. So let us stand today, if you, stand, if you can stand with me, and go ahead and read the second chapter because it tells us of the rather alarming and grim text that will fall upon Nineveh and God's pronounced judgment through Nahum upon them. 
So Nahum chapter 2 tells us in 13 verses, verse 1, The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come of flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She was carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry. But none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or the wealth of all precious things. Verse 10, desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were, with, with, no, with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves of prey and his dens with torn flesh. Verse 13, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Father. We come to you today, Lord, continuing our examination and study of Nahum. Lord, as we look upon these words, they may seem a little foreign to us. So we pray, Lord, and ask the Spirit to lead us and direct us to help us understand the text in which we read. But perhaps even more than that, Lord, we pray that this message today, these words that we're reading from a prophet from years ago, can be linked and applied to our modern-day lives. So open the way, Lord, for us to understand that today of how we can take this text and begin to directly apply it to our lives in a day that we're living. So then let us be thankful for what we shall learn here today and what we shall apply and what shall happen. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we now open ourselves up to chapter 2, we begin to examine this portion of Nahum's prophecy. Allow me to set a little bit further of the timeline for you. We've talked about this a little bit in prior weeks, that Nahum's prophecy is a little about 150 years since Jonah you know, previously went into the city. Yeah, he was a little reluctant at first, but he was obeyed ultimately, went to the city and preached the message of repentance. And they heard it, and they obeyed, and they repented. But that's been 150 years ago. So now, just kind of mark the timeline a little better. The time approximately now is 663 B.C. For comparison purposes, 
Jeremiah becomes a prophet in 627 B.C. But most importantly of all, I want you to understand of the timeline of events, what Nahum is prophesying here about what shall come upon the great city of Nineveh actually occurs in 612 B.C. So this entire chapter is really an entire prophet's book, all his writings, is a prophecy predicted about what will happen but actually occurs in 612 B.C. when the combined armies of the Babylonians and the Medes completely destroyed what seemed to be the invulnerable Nineveh. Now the once mighty Assyrian army that marched so cruelly and attacked people and nations. They plundered, they crushed the northern kingdom. In 722 B.C., they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And then they went into Judah, the southern kingdom, shortly after that, but did not conquer the city. The city was able to overcome, the country overcome the Assyrians. But now we see the Babylonians and the Medes going to team together to march into Nineveh and completely obliterate to leave them completely defenseless and destroyed. That then is what the prophet is declaring will happen in 612 BC. He doesn't know the timeline. He knows he gets the message from God. It shall happen. And that's what he's declaring in the second chapter. If you will, he's talking about what will happen with the fall of Nineveh when it happens. We know it happened in 612 B.C. So where chapter 1 included more or less general statements about the Lord's judgment shall come upon his adversary, Nineveh, chapter 2 moves directly into the pro prophecy and very specific of the attacks that shall come upon the city and its residents. So within Nahum chapter 2, you find three little divisions. You find that Nineveh will be attacked in the very beginning in the first few verses. You find they are defeated in verses 7 and 8. And you find the desolation and the plundering in the latter part of the chapter in verses 9 through 13. But here's the thing we also must see. That in verse 2, we see that God restores his people. He brought restoration to Judah. Now, let us return to the text rather briefly and look at some descriptive phrases and wording that's used here by the prophet that we know does come into existence. But notice as we return to verses 3 through 7 to dissect it a little further, it's almost like the prophet is seeing it as it happens with his details that he gives to us. Verses 3 through 7 gives a vivid description of what is going to happen with the Babylonians and the Medes as they team together. Look at verse 3 once more where it says the shield of his mighty men is red. The soldiers are clothed in scarlet. Now, some translations you're not reading from the ESV might not say mighty men. It might say valiant men. But it's all still referring to the Assyrians. But notice, if you will, the symbolism of the color of red and scarlet. Again, symbolizing the blood that they will shed. The latter part of verse 3, the chariots come of flashing metal on the day he musters them. I mean, the Assyrians would use chariots every time they got ready to conquer a new nation, 
people and city. They would use these chariots to defend themselves or to attack, to have violent attacks on other nations. But now they're going to be completely useless. Verse 4 adds, the chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro, through the squares. They gleam like torches, dart like lightning. I mean, the once powerful chariots that they used to conquer the enemy upon people and nations is now completely useless and for defense for themselves. In essence, verse 4 then really is used to demonstrate how frantic and how futile their efforts will be to defend themselves. Maybe in modern day warfare, we could take what's happening with the chariots that they used back then and say it's like a motor pool of Humvees being sent out to defend an oncoming invasion of an army. But there's landmines strategically located as they're marching and driving forth that makes it completely useless on their defense and approach. Verse 5 refers to the officers of the Assyrian army. As in any battle, here the king is going to assemble his officers and give them specific instructions to help defend himself. But the enemy, which is going to be God's work upon the prophet towards the Assyrians with the Babylonians and the Medes, are going to specifically target the officers. I mean, why not? When you take out the officers, the rest of the army becomes to crumble and then helps then the Babylonians and Medes clearly conquer the Assyrians for the city to be overthrown. The word in verse 6, the river gates being opened, we refer to the great city's dams that are holding back the Tigris River. But as the gates either then are destroyed or opened, the city becomes more vulnerable, is flooded. So much so the palace, it says, is destroyed. Notice, if you will, in verse 7, it says the city is stripped, meaning that Nineveh is certainly doomed and destroyed forever. So much so that they could not find any remnant of Nineveh, as I mentioned last week, until 1845. This is 612 B.C. 1845, multiple years later, they finally found some remnant, archaeologists did, of Nineveh. That is desolation. So the prophet spells out some things that he sees will happen. And so as he's explaining all these things in some vivid picture and some details, oftentimes people will read the words of the prophet, begin to better understand it, and they say, why? Why is it necessary that the prophet is taking such measure to paint a violent and graphic picture of what will happen? I mean, why is there such a violent scene depicted in verses 3 through 7? They ask why. Well, the answer really is God is driving home a point of that it's time for justice. We've said it repeatedly. God is angry. He has decided that this is enough. He's ridding himself of seeing the ruthless tactics of the enemy against his people. Essentially, God is ensuring justice is done. Yeah, it might be a little graphic, but he is ready 
to avenge. And remember we stated that vengeance is the Lord. Paul mentioned it in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God is putting an end to the cruelty upon his people. If you will, he's taking the occasion to judge the wicked, but to spare the righteous, as we mentioned in verse 2. Notice again verse 2, if you will. How it says, the Lord's restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. Nahum takes a moment to make sure to record the fact that Judah who has been oppressed for many years from the Ninevites. Yeah, they attacked the city. They attacked the country of Judah, of Jerusalem. They attacked. They did not overcome, overthrow. But yet they've been under oppression in Syria for many years. And now he's taking occasion to say, Judah, you shall be restored. God will restore Judah from the hands of oppression the Syrians placed upon them. And he takes the occasion in verses 3 through 7 to paint a very vivid scene of violence and destruction that will come upon those who held down God's chosen people for so many years. In very short, it is judgment time. God has decided it is now in 612 B.C. for these Assyrians to for all they've done. It is time for the city of Nineveh to be completely desolated, as it tells in verse 10, to be ruined. Notice as the people will have their hearts to melt. Their knees will tremble. Faces will grow pale. Words that describe every bit of fear and terror that will come upon them. If you will, it's come full circle upon the Assyrians for all the ruthless tactics they have placed upon the people for so many years. So maybe we pause then to understand what's happening, but maybe we need to understand better. Maybe we're saying, okay, I'm hearing you saying this, but what kind of ruthless atrocities, wickedness, evil have these people been placing upon the people of Judah, God's people? What the hell have they been doing to God's people? I mean, yeah, he's going to be desolating the entire country and all these people until 1845. But what kind of things have they been doing? Well, here is some of the tactics of the Assyrian army has been handed down through historians over the years. And, they, and these then would be the tactics that God has been watching his people endure for years. And you may note that some of these still may be used against Christians today. Notably, some of them were employed by ISIS, of pillaging and plundering the people's homes or possessions. ISIS didn't care about history. They would take different things and they would completely destroy it. But more than that, it was raping of innocent women and children, torturing of men and women and children just to gain information about the whereabouts of others. Some of you may have heard, remembered about the beheading of innocent people that ISIS did. The Assyrians would practice the same thing. Impaling people on poles. Heaping of dead bodies into huge mounds. That's the kind of things the Assyrians were known for. It's pretty ugly. 
and then the people of Judah and the nations that the Assyrians had conquered was subject to all these cruel things and had been victims for far too long. We could even think back over in history and think that not only did ISIS pronounce and use some of these kind of tactics during their time, it still may be even used against innocent men and women today whose only charge of being guilty is being a Christian. But then Hitler used some of these kind of things as well against Jews during the Holocaust. And the only crime these people have to be inflicted this way is for saying that they love Jesus Christ. So God looks upon all that and he says, well, I've had enough. Judgment is now upon you, O Nineveh. You shall be defeated. You shall be destroyed. You shall be annihilated. Your end is going to come and it's going to happen in the time that I say. God is using his power, his might, his destructive forces upon the once powerful city. And their time has come to an end. But while that is what the text reveals to us through chapter 1 and the chapter 2, we must ask ourselves, then, well, how do we apply that to our day? And that's a great question we must uncover here, because how can we take what we've understood now happening in the first two chapters of Nahum, who speaks of all the destruction of Nineveh, and apply that then to our modern-day lives. How can we take any part of that and begin to apply it to our lives? That's the question we must always ask ourselves when we look at an Old Testament prophet such as we're doing with Nahum. Well, the answer, I believe, happens to be given in Revelation. Revelation is a vision that John received while being stranded and exiled to the island of Patmos. He receives a vision and he's instructed to write. So we're not going to cover all of Revelation, way too long to do that. So we're going to land in chapter 6 to understand how that will apply to our lives someday. Revelation chapter 6. John writing says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. By the way, the destruction, the tribulation years have come in a series of three. There'll be seals trumpets and bowls, each one gaining with intensity as it occurred. The first is the seals, which occurs in Revelation 6. But John writing, the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. In his vision, he said, I looked, and behold, a white horse. Its rider had a bow, and the crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. His rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. Can you imagine? And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And his rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures say, Come. 
And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. Its rider, his name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given each a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? That text in Revelation chapter 6 is sometimes called, referred to as a four horsemen of the apocalypse. But notice how it paints a very vivid picture of the beginning of the tribulation that shall become upon the earth and all the residents that will still be living on the earth at that time. They will endure true hardship. Notice the text tells us that many will not survive. Many who are left behind, remain that time, will not survive. It's only beginning. Again, it only gets more intense as the years progress. Notice again how verse 8 said a fourth of the people who still remain at that time will perish. Verse 15 said the others who can survive was being dished out upon the earth. Those who can possibly survive it will want to hide themselves and seek shelter, but ultimately to no avail. John records the devastation that shall come upon the earth. Similar in some respect to what happens with Nahum in the city of Nineveh. So maybe you say, okay, you didn't really answer the question what does that mean? I mean, yeah, you went from Nahum to Revelation chapter 6 and you found similarities that will happen then and in the future. But what does it mean when we read Nahum and hear the destruction or read about what happened in 612 or read Revelation chapter 6 and see what's going to happen someday in the future to the people left up on the face of the earth? What does that mean? Here's what it means. That God will keep his promise and avenge the unfaithful, the evil, the wicked. I mean, if you're like me, you see things happening in the modern day and you're thinking, it seems like those evil people who are ruthless always seem to keep on winning. 
They're unfaithful. They give no reverence to God, but it seems they continue to conquer and win. When will God finally get even and avenge his people? Well, we don't know the time. We don't know the day. But the text clearly reveals it shall happen. When one day God will say, enough, enough, and will place the wrath upon the people that are still remaining. He will place wrath upon the earth and the people who remain. So here's the question we must begin to understand and maybe begin to directly apply. Because it shall not happen to one of God's people. Remember, he restored the country of Judah. So the question really we begin to understand for application is, are you one of God's people? Have you truly accepted Jesus Christ as Lord? Because that wrath, that destruction will not come upon the people of God. It will become those who have been oppressing the Christians, the people that seem to be unfaithful but yet still in survive. I mean, on a day to come, it's going to get ugly. We think it's bad today. We ain't seen nothing. And in this time when this happens, we won't see this. Because first, Christ will come back and take his church. But it's going to be an ugly, horrible day for those who do not or will not accept God's one and only son. I mean, Jesus paid the price for each one of us. He came to save. Some spit upon that sacrifice. Some mock him. And for those that do, God will be angry. And he will stand against them, just as he did with the Ninevites. Look with me in verse 13 of the text today. Concentrate, if you will, on seven words. Bold and underlined. I am against you, declares the Lord. How would you like to hear those words? I am against you. I suggest none of us ever want to hear the Lord say to us or to you, I am against you, individually or corporately together. We never want to hear God say, I am against you. So perhaps then the overall theme of this chapter and maybe so far in the book of Nahum and the lesson really to learn is we never want to hear God say, I am against you. So there's an emerging life principle, which then is this. What God opposes will end in misery and destruction. But in what God supports will end in joy and blessing. What God opposes when he stands against you, if you're still alive, remaining, when all this begins to unfold, at whatever time it happens, it will be misery and destruction, doom. But yet for those he supports, for those who he knows your name, whose name is written in the book of life, it's going to end in joy and best blessing. 
So perhaps you're hearing this and say, Pastor, I've got no worries. I've got no fear. You won't see my knees trembling. It ain't going to happen to me. Because you're convincing yourself right now at this moment that you are not in opposition of God. That you're safe, you're supportive, you're ready to receive that joy and blessing. Well, if that's what you're thinking, then let me remind you of the underlying theme we've been mentioning the last couple of weeks. It is this. That one generation's revival guarantees nothing for the next. We've been dancing around that and mentioning that for the last couple of weeks. But what it basically means that we must understand is that you've got to make your own choice. Nobody can make you except Christ as Lord. And you can't make a decision for someone. I cannot make a decision for my children, my grandparents, my friends, my neighbors. I can't make a decision for anyone. We've got to make that own decision upon ourselves. Interestingly, as some denominations teach, this may step on a couple of people, but listen. Some denominations teach that a christening at birth or at a young age guarantees your name to record in the book of life. Or that you're simply safe because you're part of a Christian family. You need to know that's not true. That each person must make their own individual choice to receive Christ. You cannot ride the coattails of someone else. you got to make your own individual choice. Because here's the thing we've got to know. The truth is this. That everyone, every one of us, will one day stand before God to give an account of only themselves. I'm not going to give an account of Lori or of Owen or of Roger or Sheila or Kayla or John or Jeannie. I give an account of myself and so shall you. You give an account of yourself, every one of us. So we got the question again. Are you sure you're one of God's people? Do you know that you know you truly accepted Jesus Christ as Lord? You know that you know without a doubt. If not, if you somehow have reservations, then the the, the thing to do is to stand with God today and commit. Make the decision to accept Christ Jesus as Lord today. That's what must happen. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. We do not know when this time is going to come. We know what happened with Nahum and Nineveh. It's written in history. But we do not know when the day of wrath is going to come upon the earth. So do you know that you know? If not, commit today. And that could end the message, but before we conclude, I would be remiss if I didn't mention one more thing we can learn and apply from Nahum that we studied thus far, and perhaps even maybe the Revelation. Because in the study of Nahum, we have observed that God had given the people of Nineveh a chance to repent. We know the story of Jonah. Yeah, he went, he preached, and either heard some seemed to truly repent. But then we also know with Nahum, 150 years later, approximately, 
They return to deceitful, sin, evil, wicked, ruthless ways. And now we see with, Nin- with Nahum, the consequences of returning to their sin is destroying them. Because God had enough. So here's the other application that seems to emerge. That there is a point. There's a time for people, for cities, for nations, after which there is no turning back. Assyria had passed that point. Do not let time run out on you. Do not let time run out for a family member or a friend. I mean, part of our responsibility as believers and Christians, if we know we're ready, part of our responsibility is to also warn others and prepare them for the day. I mean, sometime, someday, somehow, some way, we know God is going to decide it is today. It is time. We do not know when, but that day is getting closer and closer. I'm not a prophet, but I can see the day is getting closer. Can you? Birth pangs are happening. We're not oblivious to this. So heed the warning. See what's happening. Recognize there is a day, there is a time when time will run out and warn the people. God will someday call his church home. Perhaps it is soon. We do not know. But if you do know that you're not ready, then stand with God today and commit. Make the decision today. To truly accept Jesus as Lord. Father, Lord, thank you for how we can take Nahum and begin to apply an Old Testament prophet's message. Even the future, Lord, of what we read in Revelation of John, we can apply. Because we see your word clearly tells us there is a day that has occurred and will be forthcoming in which wrath will be placed upon the people that have not, will not accept the Son. They will not accept Jesus. So with that thought in mind, Lord, our today our prayer is this, that people that we love would come to know Jesus as Lord. I pray, Lord, that all of us here today are prepared and ready, but if not, if there be one here not, Lord, then place some conviction upon them and Stir in their heart greatly today to let them be ready and to accept your son. Lord, let us prepare today. And if we're prepared, let us be energetic, enthusiastically going out to tell others about Jesus so they too can be prepared. It will not face this wrath. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We owe it all to you. In your name we pray. Amen.